Yeah, yay, Brian. Applause for Brian. Yes, I'm with you. Good job, buddy. Um, hey, just a quick shout out. The men's retreat was this weekend. Got any dudes that were at the men's retreat? I was there. Some of y'all were there. Yeah. Um, I left a little bit early, but did we make it without any serious injuries? I'm hoping that the laughter means yes, we did. <laughs> um, or else there's going to be a lawsuit delivered to our office tomorrow. Hope not. But men's retreat was awesome. I don't know if he's here tonight, but Jeff Meduno, if you are, we love you, brother. Thanks for putting that on. It was a really, really awesome time for our men to hang out together and to dig into God's word together and to, you know, do fun stuff. Although, the last thing I did before I had to leave early, we carried Jimmy McChesney blindfolded. Like, he wasn't blindfolded. We were blindfolded. Like, uh, six of us carrying him. And I swear, it felt like we went for like a mile carrying him. Like, through rough terrain and over rocks and seemed like broken glass. I mean, it was really crazy, and I'm really glad nobody got hurt. But a great team building opportunity. So, if you ever want to build a team, I greatly suggest that. So, um, I'm going to stop talking now. I really need to. How about you stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word. We are in 1 Kings chapter 19. We carry on with our study, our look at the prophet Elijah, the life and times of the prophet Elijah. And so tonight we're looking at a portion of scripture that kind of we left with a cliffhanger last week where God had asked Elijah this question. And so we pick up tonight with the answer to that question. Starting in verse 9, God's word says this. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and I seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. 
Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. All right, what's my time? 4.48. Okay, I'm going to start with a quotation I want you to look at. This is from Flannery O'Connor, the great southern novelist who grew up, by the way, right down the street from my hometown. She's from Milledgeville, Georgia. I'm from Augusta. Tell me what you think of this quote. I'll read it for you. Remember that these things, and she's talking about matters of the faith, remember that these things are mysteries, and that if they were such that we could understand them, they wouldn't be worth understanding. A God you understood would be less than yourself. I read this quote up in Paradise this morning, and it got kind of a mixed reception. Yeah, it was good, Bill. I think it got a mixed reception because you could read that and you could think that what she's trying to say is that God's unknowable. You can't know God. Don't even try. But that's not the case. In the greater context, you're going to see that Flannery O'Connor is somebody that's very convinced that the, the essence of the Christian faith is that we can know God through Jesus Christ. We can know him as our Savior we can know God as our father. We can go to know God as our good shepherd, that he knows his people, and we know him through the gospel of Jesus. So that's not what's at issue. What she's saying is that when people convince themselves that they have completely understood God, that they have fully comprehended all of his ways, that they have nailed him down to this scientific formula where they know everything about him, who he is and how he operates. That's what she means by understanding God. And what she suggests is a God you understood would be less than yourself. No real God at all. This brings us to the passage that we have tonight. Because kind of the, uh, the main event and the passage that we read, at least according to me, the main event, is this moment where the Lord invites Elijah out to the edge of his cave and there is a fire, there's an earthquake, there's this mighty roaring wind and God is apparently, according to the text, not in, whatever that means, he's not in any of those manifestations. But what he's in is this still, small, quiet voice. I, I think our text called it a quiet whisper. I still, I, you know, a low whisper, there it is. The, the King James Version called it the, the still, small, quiet voice, and that's always kind of been in my head even since I've been a kid. So I'll probably reference it at that a few times tonight. But all these things that Elijah sees, God is in the still, small, quiet whisper. And I think what that suggests to us is this. That for Elijah, what God is showing him, first and foremost, is that God, his God, is something more. Something deeper than what he understands, quote unquote. Something beyond which Elijah can't even comprehend or fathom. And if Elijah thought that he had understood and nailed down God's ways and how he always act and how he must act, well, 
God was about to show him that he's way more than that. Now, reading this text and what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight at the end is that it, it, it seems to me that Elijah might not have, for lack of a better phrase, gotten it. That the Lord appears to him and he wants to show that he is more than Elijah's understanding and Elijah still might have missed the point. I'm not entirely sure. We'll get to that a little bit later on. However, what I do know is that you, as someone in Chico, California, in the year 2023, are being encountered with this word tonight. And it could be that the still, small voice of the Lord is asking you to release him from this tidy little box that you've tried to put him in. To, to let go of this understanding of God and all of his ways that you think you've mastered and let him be God. I say let him be God as if he needed your permission for that. It's more for your own good to realize that your understanding might be way limited compared to who he actually is. So we're going to break this down into three parts. I, I told the folks up in paradise this morning that I have kind of a boring division of the three parts and a, and a little bit spicier division. So I, d I went with both of them. Here's the boring one. Part one, Elijah's answer. Part two, God's response. Part three, Elijah's reaction. That's boring, right? That's what I came up with on Thursday. But on Saturday at the men's retreat, after I had carried Jimmy blindfolded for, I said a mile. It really was like 10 miles long way. Here's what I came up after that. Part one, understanding in quotes. I'm going to be doing that a lot tonight. Two, mystery. Three, stubbornness. Which, by the way, it took me about 15 minutes to figure out how to spell stubbornness. It has two ends in it. Like, my spell check was telling me it was wrong, and I kept all, doing all these combinations until I finally got it. Perhaps I googled it to figure out what it was, too, but... So understanding mystery stubbornness, what I ended up doing is just sort of combining those together. So if you go to the next slide, we're going to see this first one, Elijah's answer, a.k.a. his understanding. Now, before we do any of the division, let's do a quick recap of what we've seen so far. Some of you guys were here at church last week. Some of you guys weren't. So let me just tell you, the last time that we saw the prophet Elijah last week in the sermon text, he was a broken man. He was at the end of his rope. The reason why is because he had been at the center of all these great miracles, these great signs and wonders that the Lord had done in Israel. And yet, now Elijah was seeing that even amidst all those amazing miracles and signs and wonders, Jezebel and Ahab still didn't believe. They still weren't brought to repentance and faith. What more is it going to take? Their hearts are still hardened against God and his word. Not only that, he sees that revival hasn't broken out in Israel like you would expect when the Lord opens the heavens and fire comes down and consumes the altar. You'd think people would break out in revival. They're not. And instead of Elijah being welcomed as this hero that's led them back to the faith of their covenant God, instead he's being chased out of the city like a dog, having his life being endangered. And so this mix of fear and disillusionment 
and despair has brought Elijah to this place where, I mean, literally, he wants to die. He goes out in the desert, and he lays down under a tree, and he says, Lord, take my life. I'm done. The Lord doesn't take his life from him. What the Lord does instead is he takes this broken, beaten down prophet, and he meets him in that place with tenderness and compassion and love. And in fact, at the end of our sermon last week, that's what we focused on, is the ways in which God, he provided for this man with food and rest. He, he gave this man new direction. He sent him to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, as it says in the text. He gave him purpose and direction. And then finally, this is the thing that was most important to me, as I kind of shared a little bit about my personal story. The Lord asked Elijah this question. It's what we started with today. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it's not an accusation. It's not like, bro, what are you doing here? You should be up doing ministry in the north. No, it's an invitation. Elijah, tell me what's on your heart. Tell me what's, what you're afraid of. Tell me why you're running. Tell me why you're upset. Pour it out before me. I am God. I want to hear what's happening with you. Don't be afraid to tell me. And so Elijah says, okay, I'll tell you. And that's where our text started tonight. So Elijah's answer, his understanding, so to speak, it's in verse 10. I've got the, the start of it up here on the slide, but if you would listen along here. Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take me away. Now, what he does right there is basically just lay out a bunch of facts. I mean, most of what he said here are just straight up true facts. I've been very jealous for the Lord. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. Yep, that's true. Uh, I, I, I'm running for my life. We just talked about how that's true. The one fact that might be a little bit kind of argued about is when he says, I, only I am left. If what he means there is that he's the only believer left in Israel, that's obviously not true. And Elijah knows that. He's met Obadiah. He hears about those that are in hiding. The Lord will even tell him later that there's many who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But if what he's saying is that I'm the only active prophet left in Israel, I'm the only one who is in this vocation preaching the word of the Lord and publicly declaring it, that is true. As far as we know, he's the only one. So all these things are just straight up facts, but... Facts don't make people upset usually. Well, I take that back. Yeah, facts do make people upset sometimes. But remember, he's, he's ready to die. He's despairing. He's disillusioned. He's afraid. So just laying these things out by themselves probably aren't at the root of what's making him so upset. It's because of the conclusions that he's drawn from them. So he takes these statements of fact. I have been very jealous for the Lord, and yet they forsake you. He takes that statement of fact, and now he's drawn a conclusion about who God is and how he understands him to work. And it's this. When you work hard on behalf of God, God shows you results quickly and immediately. 
Lord, I've worked hard on your behalf, and yet the people are still have their backs turned to you. Elijah's understanding of who God is and how he operates is making him pretty upset. Or how about this? I, only I am left. Well, what do you mean by that, Elijah? Well, I mean, I don't see any other prophets. I don't see anybody else doing the work of God. Do you mean to tell me that you think that only the things you can see and only the things that you experience are are what God's doing in the world? What if he's working in ways that you can't see, that you don't experience, that you never do in your lifetime? His statement of fact becomes this conclusion, this expectation of who God is and how he should operate. We could even say this idea of, uh, of, uh, of God, you know, not showing up in Israel is one where he thinks that there will never be any justice. There will never be any recompense. There will never be any answering on the day of judgment for those that have wickedly turned against God. Again, another expectation he has that what he sees is all there is. All, all these statements of fact are just, in my opinion, just dripping with understanding, to use Flannery Connor's phrase, O'Connor's phrase, he understands God. He, he's figured him out. He's gotten to the bottom that who, of who God is and all of his ways, and he's saying, huh, if this doesn't fit in my understanding, then I just want to die and be done. Perhaps this is why God meets him in the cave, in the way that he does. Because what God is about to show Elijah is that the God Elijah understands is not the true triune God. It's a figment of his imagination. The real God is real. So, hypothetical question. If somebody has this sort of false conception, this understanding of God, that they figured him all out, they know all about his ways, what he can do, what he can't do. What do you think would be the best way to sort of just shatter that misconception? My opinion is it would be for God to show up in a way that they never anticipated, they never saw coming. And I think that's exactly what happens on the mountain here. Before this, Elijah had experienced God's powerful appearance as a fire consuming the altar. And so if we were to interview him and say, Elijah, what's the way that God appears to his people? He'd say, I know this one. I've seen it. He shows up in power and might and strength. He shows up as a consuming fire. I saw it with my own eyes. That's how God operates. That's the God I understand and know. Check this out. When God calls him out on the cleft of the rock to meet him there, God initially shows up in those powerful and mighty ways. Or I sort of misspoke, though. He sends those powerful and mighty ways. He sends a wind at first. And so Elijah's saying, here we go. This is the God I understand. The mighty wind, it's breaking the rocks, the hailstorms flying around. But what does the text tell us? God wasn't in the wind. Oh, now the earth is shaking. Now the earthquake is happening. All right, this is the God I know. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's shaking the very earth under my feet. God wasn't in the earthquake either. Oh, and now the fire. This is literally on the nose. 
of what Elijah had experienced before. This is what I remember. This is the God I know. He shows up in fire and power and might. But yet again, God is not in the fire. What? My understanding of how God appears to people is that he shows up in power and might and fire and earthquake and rain and tempest and storm. All of those things have come my way, but he's not in any of them. But he's there. How does he appear to Elijah? We said it already. In the small, low whisper, the still, quiet voice. He appears to Elijah in a way completely different than his expectations. God appears to Elijah in a way completely different than the understanding that Elijah had created about who God is and how he always operates. He shatters his illusions. Now, listen to me, y'all. It's not that God can't or doesn't show up in the earthquake or the fire or the storm. All throughout the Bible, he shows up in those powerful, mighty ways. Elijah had seen it just years earlier, or not even years earlier, weeks earlier. In the, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, the, the disciples after Jesus' ascension are, are together in the in the house, in the upper room, and they're praying, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls upon them like a... There! A mighty rushing wind! So God shows up in these ways. The point is that he particularly chose to show up in a way that Elijah wasn't expecting. That Elijah had no paradigm for. That Elijah thought, God can't operate like this. And in doing so, he says, Elijah, you've figured me out. You've pinned me down. You've mastered who I am and how I operate. But what are you going to do now when I appear like this? Will this show you that perhaps you've created an illusion and this God you understand isn't really me? Or will you hold on to your narrative of who I am and When God does this, it's like the beginning of a, a big line of dominoes where you knock over one of them and then all of the other ones begin to fall. Because when he knocks over this first domino of his appearance, it makes it where Elijah has to say this. He has to say, if I've been wrong about how God always appears to his people, what else have I been wrong about? Are there other assumptions I've made about God that aren't real? Are there other understandings where I think I've got to figure it out, which are actually not accurate at all? And this first domino of the appearance falls and all the other ones begin to follow after, or at least they should. And now we come back. Remember we said a second ago when that Elijah, he makes these statements about how jealous he is for the Lord. Or how Israel has abandoned God. Or, or that he alone is the ones left. Remember how we said that he was drawing conclusions and all those things about how God works. But now, those deep things of the heart are brought to the surface again. And God says, do you want to reconsider the assumptions you've made about me and you? Elijah, you think that when you faithfully 
fight on behalf of the Lord, it gives immediate results and reactions and the people repent and revival breaks out. But what if I were to tell you that I'm going to use your faithfulness, not for immediate action, but for slow, steady change in the hearts and minds of Israelites. That I'm going to use what you've done to actually create this chain reaction where foreign kings will be anointed that I'm going to use. And a new dynasty will come into Israel that will bring judgment upon the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And what if I told you, Elijah, that you are not going to be the last testimony in Israel, but I'm going to use you to anoint a prophet that comes after you that will continue on the work. Are you sure you want to peg me down as the one that, hey, you work for God and you get results? I'm beyond your understanding. Or how about this? Elijah, you think that you're the only person in Israel believing and following the Lord. And what that says to me is that you think that I'm only working in what you see and experience. But what if I told you that there are 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to a false god that I've preserved? What if I told you that there is a prophet coming after you that will carry on the work? What if I told you that your understanding of me and what it means to serve me is way too limited? See, this is the part of my sermon that I felt like, oh, I want to write like a 20-page dissertation on this. So I don't know if any of this is clicking. I hope it is. But what I'm trying to show you guys is when Elijah opens his mouth to speak about what he's so upset on, he's drawing conclusions about God about what God should do and how he understands God to always operate. And God says, nonsense, I am more. I am bigger than your understanding. I'm beyond your expectation. I work in ways that you can't even dream of. And I'm going to show you. And perhaps what this still, small, quiet voice is asking Elijah most of all, and it's asking all of us in here. Will you trust me even though you don't understand me? Will you trust me even though you haven't completely figured me out? Am I worthy of your trust, Tim? I think we as Americans are people that we want to step into a trusting posture only when we've done all our research, when we've mastered the material, when we know it all. Just like we have read an instruction manual or we figured out algebra and God's saying will you trust me even though you can't do that with me even though you might try to do that with me but you're going to fail perhaps that's what the still small quiet voice is asking all of us now I think like I told you before that Elijah might not have gotten this when God appeared to him in all these ways. He might not have understood it. He might not have taken this lesson, so to speak, to heart. And here's why I think that. Verse 14, right after God sends the earthquake, the storm, the fire, and then the still small voice, he asks Elijah again, what are you doing here? And this is what Elijah says. Verse 14, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And then 
seek my life to take it away. What's weird about that response? It's identical to what he said before. Verbatim the same. So Elijah has just witnessed the earthquake, the storm, the fire, and the still small voice of the Lord trying to get him to see that his understanding of God is too little, that God is more than that. And so God comes again and says, now that you've seen it all, Elijah, I'll ask you again, what are you doing here? And he just repeats the script. The same, I mean, literally, guys, it is verbatim the same. So much so that I'm sure some of the early scribes copying down this are like, was this accidentally repeated? No, it's the point. That Elijah was so married to his understanding of God that he couldn't let it go. And you know what? God continues to speak to him. He, begins to, he tells him even more details about what's going to happen in the future. But even with that, we are not confident that Elijah ever understood what God was trying to tell him. As much as it stinks to say that. What I take away from it is when we have this understanding of God, when we've got God pinned down, when we have him all nice and fit into our theology that's just so smooth and round that tells us exactly what God is going to do and not do, exactly how he operates, it is so hard to let go of that. Even when God intervenes miraculously. Even when we see it in the scripture. Even when you hear a pastor that's gone over time by a few minutes talk about it. We hang on to it with our kung fu grip, not letting go because that's what we figured God out to be. And we're going to stick to the script no matter what. Y'all, listen. Every single one of us in here has an understanding of God, whether we're consciously aware of it or it's more subconscious, that we feel like we've figured him out. I think that as I've talked to people over the years or even as I've had my own kind of heart-to-hearts with folks, I see it most in what we think about what God must do in the future, how he's working in the future in our life. Right? So everybody's favorite verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, for the Lord knows the plans he has for you. Well, I've got a very specific vision of the kind of plans he has for me. It doesn't include affliction and suffering. It doesn't include heartache. It includes rainbows and ponies. (laughs) I'll stop there. But that's one of many places. Or our theology. I mean, we're a Presbyterian church. We, one of our hallmark is that we're very thoughtful about our theology and the way that we go about worship and the ways that we see God saying, this is how I want you to go about thinking about me and worshiping about me and, and, and following me. And yet I think sometimes that I can get so cons- uh, just convinced that my theological system has him all figured out. That God is looking down at me saying like, are you kidding There's so many ways where we have pinned down how God has to operate in our life or in the life of the church or in the life of the world or our country, whatever it might be. And to that he says, I am more. Anytime you've put me in your tidy little box, 
you have put something else in there, not the God of the universe. But like we said, Elijah, God is showing him graciously that he's done that. He's saying, Elijah, take the lid off that stupid box you've got. And Elijah's like, no. It's got a rubber band on it. I can't take it off. And he holds on. So, if Elijah wasn't able to relinquish his grip on his understanding of the Lord, what chance do you have? What chance do I have? We have a good chance. And in fact, Elijah does too. I told you all that we can't be confident that he ever received this lesson that God was trying to give him. But the truth is we have evidence in the text that God was not going to give up on him until he understood. God is gracious and patient, and he is going to keep prodding at that stupid box that we have until we let it go. And I'm not just saying that because it sounds nice and good. I'm saying it because I see it in the text. After Elijah repeats his script, After he goes through his song and dance, verbatim, identical wording again, God doesn't give up on him. God continues to speak to him. And he does so with more detail, with more patience, with more kindness. As if he's saying like, oh my gosh, this guy didn't see what I was trying to tell him. And the wind and the fire and the rain and the still small voice. So you know what? I'm not going to abandon him. I'm not going to give up on him. I'm going to speak to him with even more detail. I'm going to speak to him with even more information about how I'm working in his life and his future. And I'm going to make it even more obvious that his understanding of me is too small. God, in his grace and patience and long-suffering, doesn't quit on Elijah. And he won't quit on you either. I told the folks up in paradise this morning, That if I'm right, that every single one of us has these understandings of God that we hold on to, I have like zero confidence that my one sermon is going to help you relinquish your grip on that and see God as bigger. If if it didn't work for Elijah, I don't think my sermon's going to do much. But what I do have confidence in is a patient, gracious, long-suffering God who could use this sermon who could use you reading this passage on your own and many others, who could use conversation, who could use prayer, who could use miraculous encounters to over time slowly but surely loosen those vice grip fingers you have on your understanding. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to let you walk through your life with this weak understanding of God. He and his grace is going to blow that up so you see him in all his glory. That's what I'm confident in. The grace of God is another thing we could say, oh, I understand it. No, you don't. The grace of God is so much deeper than what we realize. Sometimes we limit it purely to a forgiveness of sins and a cleansing of our unrighteousness, which is itself probably deeper than we could ever even fathom. But get this, God's grace is also about transforming your mind renewing your thinking and your understanding so that he's saying, when you think about who I am, when you consider me, 
I'm going to transform your mind in such a way that you consider me rightly and not in your own image merely. Man, I feel like if I end here, this sermon is just going to fall off a cliff, you know, with an abrupt ending is what I mean. But I kind of feel like I do need to end here. Well, actually, you know what? Let's go back to that quote. Uh, Could you rewind it back to the beginning? Yeah, thank you. I love this in the middle. Remember that these things are mysteries and that if they were such that we could understand them, they wouldn't be worth understanding. The most precious things in life are the things you don't understand. And if we could master them like we can master a Ikea instruction manual or a freshman algebra textbook, they wouldn't be worth understanding. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you patiently and graciously and continuously work on your people so that we see you as more. We see you as beyond what we've considered, beyond what we've expected, beyond what we've figured you out to be. You're not figure-outable. What a wonderful God we serve. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.